continuing our Heaven and Hell series. As a church, we are going to ask, what is heaven like? What can we know about eternity for those who trust in Jesus? I don't want to waste your time with airy speculation. I'll just grab the clicker too. And if we can throw the PowerPoint out, that would be great. Um, so I don't want to... How are we doing? I don't want to waste your time with airy speculation. Heaven as this vague picture of pie in the sky where you fly when you die doesn't motivate me, and I don't expect it to motivate you. Let me assure you, heaven is not a place where you're going to wish you brought a magazine. When our picture of heaven comes from the culture around us, expect to be disappointed. We need a better insider picture of heaven. And we don't need to rely on the claims of those who have had near-death experiences and, and claim this glimpse into heaven. Instead, we can cut out the unverifiable middleman and go straight to the source. Today, we're going to open up God's word to us and dig into what God has revealed to us in 1 Corinthians 15. So turn or swipe your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, before we can begin to unpack this, what this chapter reveals to us about heaven. Thanks, guys. Don't we love technology? Okay, so before we can be begin to unpack what this, what this chapter reveals to us about heaven, we need to understand the big picture of 1 Corinthians 15. So the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Corinth is a metropolitan trade city and a worship center for Epaphrodite. Epaphrodite is the goddess of love, or more correctly, the goddess of sex. His pursuit of wealth and experimentation with sexuality define the city of Corinth. Facing these issues is not new for the church today. The Corinthian church is a gifted and spiritually busy church. Lots of good and plenty of bad, and frankly quite strange things, are going on. In this letter, nothing is sugar-coated. We see the church warts and all. When I think of the Corinthian church and the wider culture it belongs to, I see a lot of similarities to the church in Brisbane. Paul's letter to Corinth is also a timely letter to the church in Brisbane. So look with me at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 6. Before we focus on what God has revealed about heaven in this letter, we need to be reminded of the fundamental beliefs of Christianity. For what I have received, this is Paul speaking, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 witnesses, 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of, all, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. 
Jesus died. Jesus was buried and was raised. Paul needs to remind the church of these fundamental beliefs because some of the Corinthian church have a big problem with one of them. They do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They've departed away from what they once believed. And this causes a rolling cascade of problems for their faith, which is explained throughout 1 Corinthians 15. Here's a bit of a summary of the beginning of the problems. This comes from verses 12 to 19. No resurrection of the dead, then no resurrection of Jesus. No resurrection of Jesus, then no forgiveness of sins. No forgiveness of sins, then no heaven. You see, Christianity, it comes as a packaged deal. It's not a pick and choose the ideas that you like sort of buffet. Rejecting the beliefs of the Christian faith that are hard or that you don't like comes at the cost of parts that you might like. To summarize Paul's immediate concern before our passage for today, if there is no resurrection, then our faith is futile and we are lost to hell forever. Now, for those struggling with the idea of resurrection, I commend to you Lee Strobel's book, and it's actually a recently released movie which works well for those who, like me, will read only as much as I have to. It's the movie The Case for Christ. Now, The Case for Christ, it's the story of a secular investigative journalist who follows the evidence of Jesus' death and resurrection to disprove Christianity. Without giving more away, you could call The Case for Christ a skeptic's guide to faith. Today, we need to affirm the necessity of Jesus' resurrection. Everything that we're going to learn about heaven today hinges on the truth of the resurrection. After Paul passionately laments the tragedy it would be for there to be no resurrection, comes in verse 20 what one commentator calls the but that must rank with the great buts of the Bible. And I have to admit, I laughed when I first read that. The two-year-old came in me. Um, The idea is true, even if a little poorly expressed. But here's the great but of the Bible. Verse 20 reads, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. We need to understand that everything, the whole Christian faith, has been staked on the resurrection by Paul. Paul continues to unpack the necessity of the resurrection. Paul unpacks how Jesus' rising from the dead shapes all aspects of our salvation, the past, the present, and the future. In this chapter, we see Paul unpacking the past, the history of salvation, by explaining what God has ultimately done through Jesus. Paul unpacks the present of salvation by explaining what what God is doing in us and expects of us. And of particular interest to today, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul unpacks the future of salvation by explaining what eternity in heaven will look like for those who trust in Jesus. Everything, especially our picture of heaven, unpacked in 1 Corinthians 15, hinges on the resurrection of Jesus.
So with this big picture of 1 Corinthians in mind, let's dive into our passage. I'm excited to share with you what heaven will be like. For our passage, we have three points. Three points to help us understand heaven. One, the transforming power of God. Two, the great trade. And three, we're going to look at the implications of all this. So the transforming power of God. Now, my generation, it's been called the subject to a better offer generation. It comes with the attitude, it comes with, the attitude, with this strange attitude to commitment. If you're ever wondering why it's hard to pin down a young adult to say yes to something, this stems, rightly or wrongly, from a deep anxiety that if I say yes to you, I might miss out on something better. Now, I'm not defending this approach, but it illustrates a point well that particularly my generation has a paralyzing commitment to not committing unless they are convinced that they have the best offer out there. What I will say is that you can make no bigger decision than to commit to trusting in Jesus and spending the rest of eternity with him. Heaven is forever. So I, like those in the church in Corinth, want to know what kind of state I'm going to be in forever and how I'm going to be raised up from death to this state. I want to know that I'm getting the best deal in heaven. So our passage, it opens with two questions. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? I find Paul's response, immediate response to this rather confronting. You foolish person. No, it's, it's not foolish to know how the dead are raised or what kind of body they will come. It's not even foolish to get the best deal. Remember the context. Some in the Corinthian church are denying the resurrection. And these questions, they consequently, consequently become a stumbling block for this substitute faith that they had created. The Corinthian church had members that were trying to live a pick-the-best-bits of Christianity. And this incomplete faith couldn't answer the questions they had about heaven. Some of the Corinthian church, with their bits and pieces faith, had underestimated the transforming power of God. So Paul takes us back to basics. Paul reminds us of the transforming power of God in nature. So I have two props for you. My first prop, it's rather small. If your eyesight is that good, I'm impressed. It's a snow pea seed. Nature is amazing. This seed can be transformed into something completely different. This seed can be transformed into prop number two, snow pea plants. So this 
transforms into this. God is able to transform a snow pea or any other seed into a plant. Likewise, God can transform our earthly bodies, planted upon our death, into something new, fit for heaven. Paul explains this idea, noting that God has created many different types of flesh, all which are appropriate for their circumstances. The feathers of a bird allow it to soar. The gills of a fish enable it to breathe underwater. Each flesh is given by God appropriate to their circumstances. So how are the dead raised? By the transforming power of God. And we'll see this shortly displayed, I think, in the most powerful example of the resurrection of Jesus. And with what kind of body will they come? A body designed by God that is appropriate for the circumstances. Rest assured, God has ready for you a body designed for heaven. A body designed to enjoy eternity with him. But this brings us to an obvious challenge. We don't have that body now. We need a great trade. So what can we know about this body for those who trust in Jesus? As we read on, uh, we can discover more. Our transformed heavenly body will be appropriate to the circumstances. And more than this, it will be an incredible trade. To call it an upgrade just doesn't capture enough how greater this body will be. This new heavenly body isn't just the next generation upgrade like we burn through new phones. This new, this new body is an incomparably greater gift from God. Look with me at verses 42 and onwards. What is, shown, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Paul sets up a great contrast over the next nine verses between what we have now and what will come for those who trust in the resurrected Jesus. Our current bodies, corrupted by the dishonorable shame of sin, are destined to perish. We are all on a trajectory to frailty and weakness as we approach death. Some, even as I speak now, are enduring the reality that our natural bodies are wasting away. We get it the wrong way around when we think of our youth think of the youthful vitality we once had and the body that now withers as the frail plant 
when reality is what we have now is the seed to be planted and transformed into something more amazing the best is yet to come Jesus raises his followers with glory and power my joke is that I look forward to an eight-pack in my new spiritual body. Now, I have to admit, my eight-pack, it's a bit of a speculation, um, but we have been left with an example of what the resurrected spiritual body will be like. We are told in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 48, that we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, this man of heaven phrase, it's shorthand for Jesus. In heaven, we shall bear the image of the resurrected Jesus. So let's take a few moments to explore from the Gospel of Luke what we can about the resurrected body of Jesus. A picture of our bodies in heaven depends on the resurrected Jesus. So we're going to skim through the accounts of Jesus' resurrection in Luke 24. So while they, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, were talking and discussing together, this is from verse 15, Jesus drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jumping down to verse 30. When he was at the table with him, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to him. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Jumping down to verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus stood among them. He said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened. They thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do, you de- why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? That it is myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while he was still, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? Have you anything here to eat? He gave them a piece of boiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Jesus' Jesus's resurrected body is recognizable eventually. Jesus' resurrected body can vanish from sight and appear in a room full of people. It is not constrained, constrained to the same experience of space and time as our current bodies are. Jesus' resurrected body is touchable with flesh and bones that can eat food. A spiritual body, not a spiritual spirit. What conclusions can we draw from this? Take comfort. Do not be troubled. You will not feel out of place in the new, transformed, resurrected body God has for you. The new body is greater than the old, it's a great trade. Food, touch, and to be recognized remain experiences possible in this new body. 
The new body is also equipped for new experiences that may not be limited to the space and time that we know now. We also know from 1 Corinthians 15 that our new bodies will be imperishable. They will not decline and waste away like ours do now. Whatever the new capacities of the resurrected body, we can be confident that these will enable us to enjoy to the fullest our relationship with God in heaven. Beyond these conclusions, I do not have certainty to say, other than to say I look forward to, with great excitement, the new body that God has for me in heaven. And perhaps God still might give me my eight pack. One final point before we consider the implications for 1 Corinthians 15. We also told the timing, or enough about the timing, of when our bodies shall be transformed and be like the resurrected Jesus. And this comes from verse 51. We'll get on to that shortly. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be all changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the, last trump, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead shall be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Christians will be raised up with a new, imperishable, glorious, powerful spiritual body in an instant. This will happen when the last trumpet is sounded. Now, this last trumpet. Try not to overthink it. It's a picture of God when God shall bring back his world, when God shall bring this world to a close and transform it into the new heaven and new earth that we shall inherit. Finally, death will be defeated. Death in its painful sting, which we feel at any funeral that we go to, will be no more. The kingdom of God will be ready to be inherited. In its fullness. Now, as Christians, we're not known well for our capacity to deal with change, to embrace change. But this final victorious change is one we ought to look forward to with great anticipation. It should be a great source of hope. All that is wrong with us. And this messed up world will finally be transformed. Knowing what we have to look forward to should fill us with motivation and confidence. So some implications. Let me read to you again the final verses of our passage. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Here's our implication. Embrace the resurrected life. The first step to embrace resurrected life is to ask Jesus to be your Lord. North Pine Baptist Church is here to help to welcome you in in becoming a beloved member of God's family, the church. You are welcome to talk more about this with me or with any leader here 
if you're new to this place. But if you've been invited by a friend, my encouragement is talk with them more about the first step to embrace Jesus as your Lord. You have been invited by them because they want you to enjoy a resurrected life with Jesus forever. And this call to embrace the resurrected life through trusting in Jesus comes with a heavy warning. Be warned. The great trade of the, the perishable for the imperishable, dishonor for glory, weakness for power, natural for spiritual, also reveals a stark reality for those who do not trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Without Jesus, no great trade can be made. For Christians, the encouraging, inspiring, joyful news is that this present life is the closest you will get to hell. For those not trusting in Jesus, the warning is that this life is the closest that you will get to heaven. Hear this again. For Christians, this present life is the closest you will come to hell. For those not trusting in Jesus, this life is the closest you will come to heaven. Be more like my generation. Make sure that you're getting the best deal. You won't get a better offer. Nothing can trump a resurrected life with Jesus forever. And on top of that, you get a whole new body for it. The next step is to let heaven and the great trade for a resurrected body be a source of sturdiness and inspiration for doing the Lord's work. The church is called to be steadfast, immovable. Heaven is meant to be a real motivation to undergo great trials and hard work now. Take confidence. The same transforming power is at work in you that raised Jesus from the dead. Resolute perseverance for the Lord is not in vain. Let me finish with the story of Stephanie Dunnis. Steph had or has cystic fibrosis. At just 11 years old, she began to ma suffer major health complications. By 19, she had already required a liver transplant. Further complications resulted in intestinal and kidney failure, multiple organ failure. As Steph's health declined further, she became in need of a new liver, kidney, pancreas, and intestine. Against all odds, a transplant was found. As a result of the sacrifice of another and 24 hours of surgery, she received new organs and new life. Praise God for the sacrifice of organ donors and for the advances in the medical field. The transplant means that Steph no longer has to endure hours of dialysis and intravenous nutrition feeding, and her diabetes has been cured. 
in response to this, Steph said, these very humble words, words cannot describe how grateful I am to be able to live some sort of normal life. Steph looks forward to eating food again. Steph has the humbling hope for some sort of a normal life. How much more should we be grateful for Jesus' total sacrifice, which gives us hope of a new resurrected life with a new body in heaven forever?